Hello and welcome to the February edition of On The Horizon, our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. And here we are. We're talking about February, Henry. Can you believe it? We're here to support on the depth of times or offer an opinion on golf course design. But I certainly wouldn't take advice from us on what to do on Valentine's. But anyway, we're here to do our best to see you right. Henry, we are only two months away from a full set after this one. Yes, indeed. And this year we do promise to mix things up a little bit with the format. But um, uh, once we get the full year under our belt, I think. Yeah, we're nothing if not obstinate and stubborn, are we, Henry? Anyway, um, it's good to know we've got nine of these podcasts now in the bank covering the challenges each month is likely to throw at us and all released in advance of that month, giving you a chance to prepare and develop your own turf maintenance strategy. This month, we're going to talk all about the challenges that are on the horizon in February. So give yourself some time to have a listen and prepare yourself for what is coming. Okay, once again, Glenn, we begin the podcast by taking a look at the climatic challenges that might be coming our way in February. So, Glenn, tell us, what's on that horizon? Well, let's have a look, Henry. Um, I think you all know what's going on by now, but for those peeps out there who have just found us, what we try to do is cover the important nuances of the upcoming weather that can influence the agronomics of your situation. Yeah, that's right. If we're to plan ahead, Glenn, we will need to have a good understanding of the likely climatic conditions um, that the month ahead might present us. And to do this, we need to look at the data, don't we, Glenn? That's right, Henry. Uh, We use both of our locations for me down here on the south coast in Winchester and for you up there in Ilkley in Yorkshire. And we use those as two fixed points to think about what the climatic conditions in February and what they are and what they could throw at us. The objective of this isn't to give people a weather forecast for our home, Henry. No, it's to inspire you guys out there listening to pull out your own weather data and really think about using that information to help you plan for the month ahead. Are you inspired yet, Henry? No, not yet, Glenn, but that's your job. So uh, without further ado, what is going on in February? Well, as always, we start with moisture. And February starts to present a bit of a change here, Henry. Uh, The evapotranspiration rates are on the increase and the rainfall is decreasing. We're starting to see evapotranspiration rates sneaking up to an average of 21 millimetres for both of us in February, Henry. Uh, And there's a few years in that data set where we hit 30 millimetres of evapotranspiration. That's an average of one millimetre of moisture a day lost, which doesn't sound much, but 
we're starting to move in a better direction. Well, that's good. But um, but it's only one half of the moisture balance, isn't it? The other half being rainfall or precipitation. So what's that looking like? I always feel that February is a dry month, but is that how it looks on paper? Well, whilst evapotranspiration is going up, rainfall is generally reducing in the month of February. So that's averaging around 64 millimetres for you in Ilkley and around 69 millimetres for us down south here in Winchester. So a downward turn from the last three months where we've both sat around the 90 millimetre per month mark. And when you look at the data, there's some good long breaks in there too, Henry. Most years, we both see some good prolonged periods of dry weather in February. It looks, on paper anyway, a much more settled period with fairly regular periods of no rainfall. Yeah, so depending on your drainage rates, you might be actually drying or stabilising or getting wetter. But, you know, there is that hope in there, isn't there? And, and of course, there will be some exceptions too, Glenn, won't there? Of course, there's always exceptions, and we've both seen some wet years. In 2020, you saw 166 millimetres, which would have felt very wet. But the next highest year, or the next closest to that, was 2014 with 104 millimetres. The rest of the years in my data set since 2008 are sitting pretty nice and consistent in that kind of 30 to 60 millimetres of rain pattern for you uh, and for us it's a very similar pattern and we've had two years where we got just over 100 mil that was 2010 and 2020 one year at 181 mil that was 2014 but normally we sit right between 30 to 60 millimeters of rain for february okay um, so uh, whilst there are no guarantees it might even be a drying month um, you know, that the ET might be in the same area as the rainfall. Uh, yep, for the first time in four months, that is a genuine possibility. There is still a good chance of some of that rain falling as snow, though, Henry. We see about as much snow in February as we do in January. OK, well, we discussed how we managed turf under snow cover last month, so uh, probably worth having a listen back to that rather than us repeating ourselves again. Uh, don't forget those sledge man management policies, everyone. But so far, we're um, looking at an improving picture, I think, from December and January. But what about those temperatures, Glenn? You know, my perception, again, would think of February as maybe warming up slightly. But um, I don't know. I mean, is it still cold? Is it the start of spring showing its early face? Um, I don't know. What's actually going on in the data? Well, indeed, it does start to feel like we should be beginning to turn. Uh, once we get into February, we can see some real extremes. Though. You've reached around 15 degrees in February before. And us down south, we've hit 17 degrees before. But we've also both seen some really low temperatures, down to minus seven. Minus seven is what we've both achieved in February, so it can still be pretty cold. So it's still, you know, likely to be cold. Uh, last month we talked about how many days we would get above 10 degrees um, as a sort of measure of the sort of early signs of... of possibly some growth. Does that move on from January to February? Well, for us down south, we've moved from an average seven days a month in January above 10 degrees C 
to 11 days a month. Um, and you've shifted from two days a month to six days a month above 10 degrees. Okay, so positive move, but not not massive. <laughs> what, is, what August, what sort of autumn month, sorry, what autumn month does that compare to? Well, the closest month to February on these above 10 degree hours is December, which makes complete sense as December and February are the two months that bracket the coldest month, which is generally January. Right, um, and last month you said that January and February were pretty similar, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And I think that's the challenge in breaking these patterns down into monthly periods, Henry. Um, If you wanted me to put my money on the coldest four-week period of the year, I'd probably put my cash on the last two weeks of January and the first two weeks of February rather than any one individual block of a month. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough, isn't it? Um, So what are the temperature averages then? Um, what What are they looking like in February? Well, if we average this out over the month of February, your average daytime temperature in Ilkley is 6.6 degrees and our average down here on the south coast is 8.7 degrees. Okay, so although we've moved up about a degree, I think, since January, it's we're not flying into spring, are we? No, we're, we're definitely not flying into spring and the overnight temperatures make sure of that. Uh, For you in Ilkley, your overnight February average is 1.2 degrees and Winchester's overnight average is 1.8 degrees in February. So those overnight temperatures have hardly budged. No, so we're definitely bottoming out, aren't we? Um, um, The daytime temperatures do lift to sort of move up those averages, don't they? But those overnight temperatures aren't really moving and they're keeping a, a hold on things or stopping things moving on, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And there's no real variation on that either, Henry. When we look at the data set... Uh, it's all within a degree of each other over the last 13, 14 years. So it's just not moving on those overnight temperatures. Mm, Okay, so, you know, we might see some uh, daytime pleasantness, mightn't we? Um, But we've got to be careful not to walk into that familiar trap. The the golfers tend to, when they see a bit of nice weather and think that sort of spring's on the way, but completely missing the fact that it's been really cold overnight. Does that reflect itself? in those sub two degree stopping hours, Glenn? Uh, Well, you're still at 228 sub two degree stopping hours and we are at 145 sub two degree stopping hours. So we've moved a little bit from January and we're similar to December. But what's happening is it's far more consistent and reliable in February and we see far less variation than we do in that December month. Um, A much more consistent chance of February being cold than December is. That must reflect itself in the soil temperatures, Glenn. You know, we've had several months of dropping temperatures um, and we're now um, seeing those temperatures consistently being sort of between five and eight hours a day below two degrees C. Yeah, I, I can track soil temperature, Henry, but it's all modelled. So it's worked out in a very sophisticated way. But because it's modelled and in the real world, we have so many different soil types we're working with, it, it's tricky. But, you know, I've, I've also done some work looking at sensors that are actually in the ground. And what always amazes me is looking at the fluctuation and how much it reflects and moves with that air temperature throughout the day. 
Soil temperature, I used to think, was a really static number that took a long time to move up and down. But actually, it's nowhere near as static as I thought it was. And it, it, it does move. Yeah, I've seen that in trials as well. Um, it moves a lot, actually, doesn't it? Depending on, uh, I suppose, depending on the, the sort of individual site conditions. Um, do you think it's mainly to do with air temperature? Yeah, it, it's insulated slightly by the soil, Henry, but nowhere near as much as I thought. Some soils will insulate less, and the deeper we go, the more insulation we have. But during this point of the year, the roots are going to be pretty shallow, so they're not influenced very much by those deeper soil temperatures at lower depths that don't move as much. Um, but if we look at the averages, Henry, February is the coldest point of the year for soils. And mid-February is when, on average, we are at the lowest. For you, that's about 2.6. And for us, that's about 4 degrees. But on average, we see a lift from mid-February to the end of February of about 2.5 degrees. So going into March, we head in there kind of five to six degrees somewhere in that region normally. Mm, that is interesting. So so we go into February with cold soils, uh, which keep sort of dropping until mid-February, which on average would be its coldest point of the year for soil temperatures. But at the back end of the month, we see it begin to lift and actually lift quite a lot, I think, uh, to something more positive and also, uh, sort of almost at that level where we're, we're sort of borderline growth opportunities. Yeah, indeed. But it's let's not get our expectations up too high. The warmest daily average we've seen at the end of February is 11 degrees C for me in the south and 9 degrees for you in Ilkley. But we've also seen it as cold as 1 degree for the both of us at the end of February. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's sort of it's just going to depend, isn't it? But there may be opportunities there, however short-lived. So, with temperatures still being so cold, Glenn, is it worth even talking about growing degree days? Probably not, Henry. It is just worth saying that the middle of February is probably the lowest point of the year for growth, though, normally. But there is a chance of jumping into a full spring sometimes towards the end. Oh, yeah. Full springs, Glenn. Now, now, that, that is definitely something that we should talk about next month. OK, once we get into March, Henry, we'll see some more hints of growth, but we're probably still eight weeks away from anything consistent, though. OK, very good, Glenn. So in summary, for us up in Ilkley, or for both of us, really, we're, we're sort of bottoming out, aren't we? But for us up in Ilkley, we might be turning the tide on moisture with the odds being stacked in favour of a drier period and with evapotranspiration beginning to lift. Uh, temperatures do continue to drop uh, or bottom out. And whilst the daytime temperatures might be sneaking into a positive direction, those overnight temperatures tend to remain stubbornly low. And if the averages play out, we'll be reaching our coldest soil temperatures for the year around about mid-February. But there is a chance... Uh, uh, quite a small chance, I think, of us seeing more positive conditions towards the end of the month. So things might be looking up for us up here in Ilkley. Indeed. And for us on the south coast, it's a very similar pattern. Maybe a degree warmer than you on all counts, which in turn, maybe, just maybe, means we can get the mowers out a day or two earlier than you. Yeah. OK, so so just to clear this up, and I, I think I definitely know the answer to this one, but, uh, but Glenn, can we call it spring yet? No, Henry. 
We only just agreed in last month's podcast that winter had started. Right. Yes, indeed. So February is definitely a tricking time where um, we sort of reach the bottom but start moving upwards. Indeed. And maybe, just maybe, a few hints of growth, Henry. Well, let's hope so. Well, Glenn, with hints of growth on the horizon... Uh, where do the golfers sit at this time of year? Do they still understand that we're in the depths of winter or do they see the sun coming out and assume that the golfing season has started in earnest? You know what, Henry? I don't think February is too bad for for managing golfers. Um, we start to see some breaks in the weather and golfers are just pleased to have a bit of sun on their back. Turf isn't growing and for the first time in a couple of months, we'd actually start to welcome a little bit of growth. Um, hopefully we'll get a few dry breaks in there, enabling us to get the brushes out and knock some of those worm casts about. Uh, the mowers may go out and just maybe allow us to get a little bit of definition back towards the end of the month. Mm. And the good news is that it lasts during this period of the year, a cut every couple of weeks and the place looks great because the grass just isn't growing. Greens run really well because we've got the world's best plant growth regulator in its place. What are those cold temperatures? Yeah, that's right. It just holds it still for you. So a few rolls and those putting surfaces just become awesome. Even if they've been littered with disease scars, they still putt well as the grass isn't growing yet to start highlighting those differences. No, we, we, we wait for the spring for that one, don't we? Um, when things start to get going more consistently. Yeah, it's actually a time when if we keep things up together through those tough months, we can start to get a lot of really positive feedback. And I actually started to dread this time of year because we'd start to lay some foundations for those expectations for the season ahead. I'd start overhearing comments like, wow, did you play up there today? Y yeah, I did. Those greens were amazing. And that was great to hear. But when the grass isn't growing, Henry, delivering quick greens is a really easy thing to do. The worry would be the next bit of the comment, which would be something like, yeah, if those greens are that good now, just imagine how good Glenn's going to get them in the summer. And that was it. That was the crunch point. That was the gauntlet that I wrestled with for the rest of that year. They need to be better than they are now. Yeah, that is an interesting point. You know, you want the greens better than this when when sort of three rolls a week and nothing else are enough to, to give you greens at 10 foot every day. What's better than that? Well, it was the challenge I wrestled with every year, Henry. And from my point of view... It was e one of the easier times, but from the golfers' point of view, they just assumed as the weather got better, the greens were going to be better. And what we started was this impossible chase of exceeding the customer's expectations. It started then, that first dry week in February, was when that horrible race to exceed what the customer wanted began. That is a bit depressing, actually, again, isn't it? It's way too early to have that sinking feeling yet. Yeah, but it's not all bad, though, Henry. We're, we're now entering those windows of a little growth occasionally and assuming it's dry and the good opportunities start to present themselves so we can present nice, firm, tight surfaces that don't require much maintenance. Um, 
We're not seeing much divot recovery at this time of year. I remember getting loads of flack that we had divoted enough. And there was one year where I remember really pushing the boundaries and rallying the troops and getting loads of members involved and doing a huge divot party only to be told the following week that I'd completely wasted their time as none of those divots had grown in yet. So divots and worn-out par threes were always a bone of contention in this pit bit of the year. I lost track of the reports I wrote in February about protecting fairways from divots. And the answer to that was always less golf or use AstroTurf. Neither of those options were well received. We looked at enlarging tees to cope with the additional wear that we got or lack of recovery. And we looked at AstroTurf winter tees. And to be fair to the club I worked at, um, they did support a programme of enlarging tees, but they just never had or committed the finance to do that programme quickly. Um, so we've moved into good golf conditions and we've got golfers in board, on board in general, but they're just completely missing the point that on one hand, no or low growth is giving them these great firm running surfaces, but that same climatic trait is also robbing them of any kind of recovery. Yeah, so how long does this battle go on for then, Glenn? Well, I guess that's the master syndrome right there, Henry, which we're now on the run-up to. This transition from wet, soggy and cold, going through to firm, tight and fun, with a few moans about the lack of recovery. And then we move through to intermittent growth, which can be tricky to manage, through to the next phase, which is Augusta's looking great. Why aren't we? Yeah, well, that's spring mapped out then, Glenn. No need for any more podcasts until May. <laughs> Indeed. And as far as that roadmap goes, Henry, I think certainly the back end of February is the best part of this spring journey. Yeah, I think we've got a bumpy road ahead of us on that horizon. I think you're right, Henry. So, Henry, what are the risks that may loom large in February? Well, Glenn, as we've already discussed, I think the risks at this time are very much in the hands of the weather and the agronomic odds are pointing towards cold and dry conditions with very little growth. And so I think the mantra is very much to hold our ground at this time and just do everything that we can to prevent deterioration. Yeah, indeed. We definitely can't put those bobble hats away just yet and the exhaust pipes are still an essential piece of hand-warming apparatus. Uh, both of those are signs of very limited growth. Certainly a wet month, as you outlined, can happen, uh, would be really unwelcome because that would just lead to increased levels of wear and tear around the golf course and it also might limit the level of work that we can get on with at, the, at this time. So I think on balance we're all wishing for a cold and dry February, Glenn. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what everybody is um, 
hoping for. Uh, and, and these days in February, they're, they're increasingly becoming a time when course managers are looking to close in those winter projects, possibly get those early renovations out of the way, and then start kickstarting the whole process of getting re- things all ready for spring. But if we're wanting to get around the course with machinery and get some aeration or coring and top dressing done on the greens, then the course and the greens needs to be relatively firm and dry, which could, which it could be if those agronomic odds play themselves out. Yeah, we um, kind of mentioned those renovations there and um, those early renovations. Do you want to catch on the catch up on these uh, ultra early renovations and preparations a little later on in the podcast? Yeah, good idea, Glenn. I think I do. But you know, we must think that we could also get some milder temperatures that might stimulate some growth and other activity at the surface um, and so we still need to be on the guard against microdochium patch disease activity but as we said last month the risk of attack would probably only be really significant in those areas previously affected by disease and with the danger being primarily from those kind of reanimated scars. We just need to keep going with our ITM strategy, I think, at this time of the year. The risks aren't particularly high, but it's important to keep a close eye on the ongoing situation just to make sure that we don't let anything uh, enter into the game. Hopefully we won't need to... um, employ the use of a fungicide but we should always be prepared yeah it can be mild in february but february is more likely to be cold frosty with the occasional bit of snow in the game so if you do have to reach for a fungicide maybe you want to be thinking about medallion if it is cold it'd be pretty unusual for you to reach for anything else during this period of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we've already mentioned, we did sort of talk quite a lot about those cold, snowy conditions last month. But we do actually have quite a recent experience of, a, of quite a significant and prolonged blast of that colder polar air coming over from the continent in the, in the form of that dreaded beast from the east that started in um, at the end of february in 2018 and i think we've we we, we've probably still got all very fresh memories about that because it was a really bitter time and so we shouldn't be thinking actually that sort of um that it's all plain sailing after christmas no that's right that those easterlies can really kick in through this period of the year and that cold weather is the big handbrake to growth that we just can't release that handbrake without mother nature playing ball and warming things up all that cold air being brought down on those easterly winds from scandinavia and russia can cause havoc Mm, yeah it can and i think the desire to get on early with those renovations is partly to get in front of those potential easterlies because they can they can just go on for weeks can't they and and really tie our hands i remember early spring last year being particularly brutal not only on my hands when i was out riding my bike but also for those early season trials which just stood still for a month as a result of that cold 
uh, and what we would call, Glenn, stopping weather from the east. Yeah, maybe those stopping hours aren't just fuzz stopping, Henry. Maybe they're mm. trial stopping degrees too. Yeah, they definitely were last year. Anyway, there are other dangers at this time and sort of moss invasion would be one of them. Um, and so the application of sulphate of iron and maybe some nutrient appropriate to the conditions might be beneficial because even though the growth potential models, which are based on seasonal averages generally, might not say so. Uh, we know that we can generate turf responses at this time, given reasonable temperatures and sunlight. It just depends on what's going on, really. Yeah, we just need to be sensible, don't we? There may be some brief opportunities for growth, but only if conditions are suitable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, February is also a time, Glenn, when we might start seeing some... And I hate to say it, Glenn, some leather jacket grub activity if those soil temperatures start creeping up, like we said. So it might be towards the end of the month that we start seeing some activity. Yeah, that's right. It's more likely to be down south. Remember those feeding degree days, Henry, that we spoke Mm, about before. Um, But the chances of seeing some grub activity is definitely on the increase. So we will talk about that one in more detail later on, touching again on how we can monitor and manage things and put the right strategies in place. Any chance of seeing any chafer grub activity at this time, Glenn? Yeah, maybe, Henry, and maybe some secondary pest activity in search of those grubs. It just depends on how the winter is going. Let's make sure we cover that one in that section later on. Okay, great. So, in summary, there are some risks in the game in February, but they're not necessarily huge. If if the weather delivers a seasonally average February, then we're mainly bothered about wear and tear and maybe some moss encroachment. Um, but if it turns mild and wet, we might be more bothered about protecting the course and maybe even seeing some microdochian patch disease activity. If we get another beast from the east, then we all simply need to take cover. We do need to be monitoring for pest activity, uh, but we might also be taking the chance to get some early season preparation work under our belt as well before the potential easterly blast arrives. On balance, Glenn, after talking about it, I think that February might be more of a time of opportunity uh, for us but there are also those threats to be considered. That was my experience. It could be good, but it could also be brutal and still a long way to go before spring yet. Yeah, indeed, Glenn. February can also be a very defining time. Yeah, we're definitely beginning to think about that turn though, Henry. It's time to take stock and, and think about where we are, get ourselves ready for the season so we should be prepared for some opportunities. Very good. Henry, we've covered quite a lot there. Um, I'm just about ready for a cuppa. But when we come back, let's take some time to talk about leather jackets and chafers. Uh, Let's talk about taking what potential downtime we could have to plan for the season ahead. Uh, Maybe chat about early season renovations. And I also think we should have a chat about budgets and what to expect as far as price increases across the market. Um, and what we can expect next year. Mm, Sounds good to me, Glenn. Get the kettle on. Welcome back to part two of the February On The Horizon. 
In the first half, we discussed the weather um, that we might expect in February, hopefully cold and dry. Uh, Those risks that might be apparent, hopefully low. And those golfers' expectations, which are hopefully reasonable. And we think that it might be a time for opportunity or for beastliness. Uh, We've had a quick break and we've made ourselves a cuppa uh, before embarking on part two. And I'm interested to know, Glenn, what have you gone for this month? Well, Henry, if I'm honest with you, I do not know what brand of tea is in my mug because we've got a new set of tea decanters to hold the tea bags in and they're all mixed up. (laughs) Wow. And also... Have a new mug. Brilliant, Glenn. So does that make a difference? Well, uh, it's a bit frustrating because on the packet, it told me it held 680 millilitres of liquid. But I've measured it with my measuring jug and found out that if I brim it, I can only hold 600 millilitres of liquid. But actually, you can't drink it or carry it then. So I can only get 560 drinkable millilitres of tea. But actually, that's fine because that's over half a litre of tea. And um, I'm finding I'm using the toilet far more than I did pre-Christmas. Yeah, that's plenty, Glenn. Don't don't drink any more than that. I like it. It's, It's comforting, Henry. Mm. Um, anyway, how did you do with the tea advent calendar in the end? Did you get to try them all? I did, Glenn, actually. And, I, I, you know, I was very surprised. I actually developed a taste for them by the end of it because they weren't really what I was kind of used to. And I've got to say, actually, that I really enjoyed the whole thing. You know, having, you know, one new tea a day throughout the course of December, you know, forced me to sort of commit to the whole thing, So, and I, which I really enjoyed. So thank you very much for that. Oh, you're more than welcome, Henry. I think I... I give you more than enough headaches through the year to justify an advent calendar, mate. Mm, that was really good. Were there any favourites in there? Well, yeah, indeed, there was. Um, and I actually bought a box of the chai black tea. Oh, excellent. Um, and how would you describe that? Uh, luscious, Glenn. Uh, appealing strongly to the senses and pleasingly rich. You're drinking it or smoking it, Henry? Uh, drinking it in, Glenn. Drinking it in. Okay, Glenn, we've already noted uh, in the climatic section that February is probably the lowest point of the year for, for soil temperatures. So with that in mind, do you think that we'll start seeing any activity on the leather jacket front? After all, it is a soil-dwelling larvae, um, and so it should be less active in those cooler conditions, surely. Uh, that's right. And and as you'll know, because you've listened to me talking about it endlessly, I believe the activity of these larvae is very dependent on the soil temperatures. OK, so go on. What do you mean by that? Well, the colder it is, the less active they are. The warmer it is, the more active they are. And the more active they are, the more that they can feed and grow. So when we think about the beginning of their life, I'm going to roll the clock back a little bit here. When we think about when this all started, we can start to understand their development patterns. So going back to last year in 2021, we saw crane flies being reported on Pest Tracker from around that third week of August through this year to about the third week of October. Yeah, it was like an eight to nine week egg laying period, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And there's a very clear peak in the middle. Now, 
those ones that were the first to hatch or the first to be laid, uh, they would have hatched earlier and they would have had more time in warm soil conditions in September and going into October. And that time would have allowed them to mature and feed much more than those that hatched later on in the season. Uh, the later hatching ones would have had less opportunity in milder conditions to mature and feed. Then as we moved into the colder temperatures, we would have put all of those leather jackets on ice and just held them still. And they seemed quite happy just hiding away, not moving and simply waiting for the soil temperatures to pick up. Yeah, so in essence, we will have uh, a wide range of uh, larvae maturity levels or sizes going on, all sat there in a kind of um, suspended animation type state at this time. They're all waiting for those little warm breaks in the weather that we sometimes begin to see in February and they will wake up and they will feed and uh, when it goes cold again they'll go back into hibernation or a diapause as it's referred to in the insect world. Very good Glenn. So the soil profile is now potentially loaded with grubs uh, and the insect is ready to commence its feeding frenzy that it begins in order to develop and then ultimately reproduce later on in the year. Uh, yeah, indeed. And But hopefully we've had really good levels of control and reduced that population by significant levels in the autumn with well-timed acelerant applications. Maybe we've even dealt with them all in that October and November period. But it is likely, and there is a possibility, and even a chance, that there'll be some of them remaining. And some will migrate in, or they'll begin that redistribution journey that they take as they start to get larger, stronger, and we get longer periods of warm weather. Yeah, there is that dynamic going on, isn't there? Um, all right, so, so what can or should we do at this time of year, Glenn, if we're bothered about or beginning to be concerned about leather jacket activity? Well, we need to stay focused on the monitoring, Henry, getting out those sheets like we spoke about in December's episode, uh, particularly when we have the milder nights, which we should start getting a few, or we hope to get a few of those in February, particularly towards the end. We need to keep putting those sheets out. Let's find out exactly what we have in the soil. How many are there? What size are they? And we need to add that data to the stuff that we gathered in December. So all those numbers that we hopefully gathered in December, we can start adding that to our February data. So we can now start building our picture. This allows us to plan for when we do get to those mile breaks in the weather, which will start to become more regular soon. Yeah, well, hopefully, Glenn. Well, I'm sure it'll come in March. It will come in March. It's got to come at some point in the year. But when we begin to get that activity, what we want is all that data to help us know exactly where to concentrate our efforts. We want to know if we're going to have to spend hours putting out big sheets, then we want to know where it is worth doing it. If we're going to go out and mow in the dark to harvest them from the surface and begin to reduce numbers with that kind of mowing in the dark method, then we want to know which greens to go and target first. So if we start pulling large numbers up with those small sheets, 
then we know it's worth rolling out the big sheets. But if those small sheets don't pull out anything, the leather jackets just aren't coming out, then the big ones won't do a job either. With that data and all that information we're gathering, we can also start communicating what we're seeing with the key people in the club. Now, that might be your chairman of Greens, it might be your uh, general manager. It will be different for all of you, but you'll know who you need to communicate this with. But for me, all of these actions now start with this small scale sheeting. That is what drives the next steps. I suspect most of the next steps will be in March and April before growth kicks in in May. So we really need to make sure we talk about the things we can do in March and April in the next podcast. But once we get through to the end of April, hopefully the weather's going to move on. We've reduced those numbers enough so we've got through safely and we can forget about this problem and just crack on with the lane playing season. Mm, yeah, well, fingers crossed for that, Glenn. Um, just as a side point, how effective do you, do you think the large-scale sheeting is, Glenn? I'm not sure, if I'm honest, Henry. Um, but it is satisfying to pull those sheets off, see hundreds of them and mow them with the mower, so I get why people do it. And it's probably the best curative solution we have currently. I think it needs some really decent trial work doing on it to fully understand it. But it is the best we've got available at the moment, I think. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, part of an integrated plan, isn't it? Yeah. Um, all, all right. Well, let's not forget about the the chafer grubs. Also, Glenn, uh, we we do often overlook this one, especially at this time of the year when the focus starts to be sort of more dominated by those leather jackets. Uh, yeah, and with chafers assuming we haven't got a decent level of control, then this is that time of the year when the badgers will be out foraging in their masses as their other food sources will be dramatically reduced because of those cold overnight temperatures. Anything we can do now to put those pests off and move them to less important areas will really help. Another thing to watch out for is if we start to get some drier weather, then it's highly likely the areas that the chafers have been feeding on will dry out first because there'll be no root structure there to be reaching for moisture deeper in the soil. So definitely keep an eye out for that one. If it's something, if you see something out there, some turf that's starting to stress earlier than you expect, it's definitely worth having a little dig to see what's going on now. Our strategy for chafers now during this February period is the best possible plant health we can achieve. Lots and lots of scaring devices to move things on and mapping those problem areas for treatment later in the year when we do have treatments available to us. Okay, so, well, plenty to go at then um, if we wanted to get that early warning um, for the upcoming season. Now, Glenn, we did do an industry survey on the subject of uh, leather jackets and chafer grub pests in the autumn last year and uh, via survey monkey it was which was targeted at the whole of the uk amenity sector it was really good actually it was distrib- distributed um via email through the uh, i think it was the icl syngenta bigger uh, gma and amenity amenity forum databases and we got a really good response of over 350 respondents and it was really clear that the chafer grubs and leather jacket grubs are you know a a really significant problem for the whole of our industry and 
taking a quick look at the results, which I'm sure we'll publicise later on, what surprised me the most was um, was that greater than half of the respondents said that they suffered from both pests, Glenn, um, both leather jackets and chafer grubs. Yeah, I saw that. It's interesting. We we used to think that it was an either kind of an either or an or situation. You get one or the other with these pests, uh, maybe because they like slightly different environments. But it looks like that's not so clear cut now. The more we look at this subject, the more we realise that we probably didn't perceive it correctly in the first place. Yeah, well, that, that you know... I think I think that will continue to happen as we mm-hmm. learn more and more. In terms of what was causing the damage or what is causing the turf damage, it looks like there is a broadly even split reported in the data between uh, the grubs only causing the damage or secondary pests causing the damage or both. You know, it seems to be sort of... Um, um, it's ev- fairly evenly split. Um, although areas infested by chafer grubs uh, were more likely to be damaged by secondary pests, you know, those badgers and such um, that you mentioned that sort of go in search of the grubs and, and, and do so much damage as a result. Yeah, those secondary pests can do an awful lot of damage and they're not necessarily chasing a high population level of chafers or leather jackets either. Yeah, exactly right. It can be so disproportionate, mm. can't it? The results also showed us that the infestations are occurring every year in the main and they are becoming more severe. This is not a problem that is going away. Yeah, we're really aware of this. It's the reason why we talk about it so much, Henry. This is a problem that is escalating and it's clear we need to get fully fully engaged and really understand integrated approaches if we've got any chance of holding this in check in the future. Yeah, and, and we need, you know, we really need a celebrant as a part of that approach, Glenn. Um, and so hopefully, eventually, we're, we will get a full approval, um, you know, coming in, in 2022. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm not a religious man, Henry, but my wife catches me praying for that one every day. Um, we're very much in the hands of the regulatory authorities on that one. Indeed, indeed. Well, yeah, fingers crossed and, and, and everything else. We did also ask respondents if they had used non-pesticidal uh, methods to control these pests, such as, you know, these sort of insect parasitic nematodes or even those dubious biostimulants that seem to be getting sold into the market that purport to have activity in this area. And although the uptake of those alternatives was quite high, about 60% of the respondents said that they tried stuff. Remember, this is industry-wide, not just golf. Um, uh, So it was quite a huge sort of there was quite a lot of non-pesticidal control methods being tried the overwhelming consensus was that they were only partially effective at best um in that they were so it was felt that they might have reduced the level of infestation but the damage still occurred or they were not effective at all interestingly only 10 percent of the respondents that had used these non-pesticidal alternative methods uh, described them as being being remotely effective um yeah interesting stuff yeah i think it shows that they're not standalone technologies but some might have benefit if used as part of integrated strategies and we need to do more work on getting the best out of them 
And we also need to do more work to see which ones are effective, which ones aren't, and what level of effectiveness the customer can actually expect out of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a grey area, these kind of sort of, um, you know, these other technologies. You know, a, a, a fully approved um, pesticide has all the evidence that we need to uh, to demonstrate that it works, doesn't it? I think it is clear um, that if we are to be fully effective with our control methods, especially in those situations where we have, it, you know, ultra extreme pest pressure then we might well need to bring together you know um two three four different control strategies and 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 integrate them and so this is where the sort of trial data becomes more and more important once we start piecing these trials together it's so tricky due to the inconsistent nature of how these pests attack and lay Mm. their eggs in our turf they're really difficult yeah, it's easier said than done, isn't it, um, when it comes to pests? But look, a really good exercise, and thanks to everyone who took part in those surveys. It's it's really going to help, and I, th- I think I'm going to use quite a lot of that data um, as part of an application for the emergency approval in case we don't get a, a full approval this year. So, so thanks for that. It's been really helpful. Yeah, it's great when people engage on these things. I, I, mm. I don't think you guys out there realise just how how important it is to us that you keep continue to engage mm. on these kind of surveys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the end of January and the beginning of February is a real opportunity, Henry, to sit down and get some stuff done. The things that no one ever has the time to do, but we all know we should do it. This is the time to make a list allocate some time in the diary and delegate some responsibilities out to the team. Indeed, especially with Harrogate being put back. We never seem to get any uh, downtime these days, but if there is an opportunity, then surely this must be it. Yeah, indeed. I've got fond memories of frosty mornings and playing darts for what seemed like months on end at the beginning of my career. But the industry and the weather has changed a lot since I started back in 1992. All right, so what are you thinking about then, Glenn? Well, it used to be machinery servicing and whilst this is probably the best time for those bigger jobs maybe cutting unit overhauls i suggest most people have moved over to a far more regular and preventative maintenance program with their machines now due to prolonged grass growth and the recognition that it means better longevity and quality from their machinery. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting comparison, isn't it, to sort of general turf maintenance as a whole, you know, right there. The the sort of investment in preventative uh, maintenance uh, rather than the, the sort of the old school fixing it when it breaks mentality. You know, things have changed, haven't they? We've we've certainly come a long way from holding machines together with baler twine and duct tape, Glenn, haven't we? And, uh, and I think most people now have, have made that switch to a more proactive approach, uh, which, of course, you know, um, makes the most sense. Um, but, you know, there, there are some still, there are some people out there that still seem to cling on to the concept of curative turf maintenance or even machine maintenance, which of course is 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 simply asking for trouble, I would say. Yeah, indeed. They're just waiting for things to break. Anyway, and, and then there's team training and some would lean heavily on BTME in January for that. And with BTME delayed this year, as you mentioned, 
maybe we should be looking at investing in our team through this period. Things like chainsaw training, excavator training, mower training. There is so much good training out there, but not that many good trainers. So get those guys and girls booked in because getting them booked in is essential and this is our chance could be sort of in-house training couldn't it you know i know our teams of area manager always happy to do training sessions in the mess room if you want an hour's introduction on fertilizer technologies etc yeah that's right stuff like that is brilliant and if you can pull a couple of golf course teams together in a covid safe way then even better mm. because we get more value out of that training and that time mm. of course though we have the ever-looming health and safety records to update and share with the team yes reading through those risk assessments with the team is never perceived as the most exciting thing to do but couple it with some hot chocolate a bit of super grass frost outside and you've got a winner well you can't beat a bit of super grass glenn they're my favorite band well i know henry i've seen the surveys um <laughs> it And it's also not a particularly exciting thing to do to think about it, but a task that could seriously help avoid injury when you're looking at those risk assessments. So it is a good time to do it. It's also a good time to look at or start writing some standard operating procedures with your team. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that would certainly fall into the category of, you know, investing the time now could really reap dividends as we go into the season with sort of everyone knowing exactly what what to do or what is expected. Mm, That's right. But the big one for me, Henry, the one that people don't make time for that I'd love to see them making time for is a plan do review exercise pull out your weather records for the last 12 months and have a really good look map them out on a big piece of paper get those dry white markers out and scribble all over it mark down your challenges for the year when did you see disease on your golf course map out that microdochia map out that anthracnose that fairy ring Then start highlighting on there all the operational challenges you had. Start looking at your renovation weeks, when were club championships, all of those kind of things. And then start overlaying all of that. Then start overlaying your program for the year. Have a look at when you put fungicides out. When did you feed? When did you introduce the verticuts and the groomers? And assess it with your team. Talk to them about what works. What did we get right? What? could have or should have been better it's important to get the team involved here as when you look at this you're probably going to be much tougher on yourself than anyone else needs to and they will be looking at it through a different set of eyes yeah i can imagine you being really tough on yourself glenn is it worth getting someone like the um, chairman of greens involved i think so i think if i was back in that role i think i'd do a workshop with with some of the members, someone from the ladies, someone from the seniors, maybe a chair of greens, myself, my deputy. And we just try and do that exercise, not so much the kind of fertility program, but talking about what we managed to deliver through the season and looking at it and, and listening to their thoughts on the season. It's highly likely they'll have completely forgotten all about those minor issues that you still got in your head. You won't have forgotten about them and the fact that you still remember all that will just show them how serious you are. When you look at it as a year with their views, then you can start to pull your programme around a little to improve it where it needs improving 
And maybe when you've taken their views on board, you'll realize that some of the areas you're focusing on aren't quite so important. So maybe you've got the opportunity to back off in those areas. Mm. But getting other people involved in this is a real eye-opener. We do this workshop occasionally, don't we, Henry? And it's yeah. great when someone brings a chairman of the Greens along because you could just see them bombarded and they're just surprised at how much you've remembered. Mm. And I think taking their views on also gives you a bit more leverage when it comes to building a budget. After all, your job should be customer satisfaction. If you build a program because the consensus of your members or that kind of select party was that disease was unacceptable in that period, then you've got a bit more leverage to acquire the necessary budget to deal with it. Mm. If no one was worried about it and they didn't notice then you're probably on track anyway. So for me, I think if I was in that role again, I think this is an exercise I'd be doing before I pulled a budget together to help me justify um, that expenditure and the changes. And I think it would be useful. And I think if we've got a time in the year when we've got time to do this, it's probably February. Yeah, indeed. And and, and I, and I think, oh, well, uh, this year, it would mean that you could go to... BTME with you with a plan and, and and ready to make the most of it. Let's hope so, Henry. Let's hope so. So, Henry, you were going to touch on that early season preparation work that you mentioned earlier. Yes, absolutely, Glenn. It might be a little early yet for some locations, but there has been a widespread trend in recent years for course managers to, to sort of launch into their pre-season preparations, you know, hollow signing and top dressing of greens and stuff like that in February and March, probably starting towards the end of February when those when those soil temperatures begin to lift. Yeah, soil temperatures don't seem to be lifting every year or earlier every year, but um, renovations seem to be getting earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't know whether it's a desire to beat those easterlies or take advantage of maybe some drier or firmer ground conditions or simply just to get everything done before the masters or well before the masters you know those early early season renovations are now commonplace which certainly wasn't the case when i was an agronomist uh, 10 years ago at, at that time we were generally waiting for growth to emerge and so it was more likely that this work would be scheduled for april and may which of course uh would cause complete ructions with the members who were wanting quite rightly who were wanting their greens to be you know just like those ones at the at the augusta national yeah indeed i've never actually found a way of getting members excited about a renovation period no i used to actually go to loads of members meetings when i was an agronomist or should i say lynchings um and the spring work in April and May was generally, I would say, universally regarded as being completely unacceptable to the members because just because of the high level of surface disruption that it caused, you know, just at the time when the season was really getting going. Um, and you can understand it, can't you? Um, so it, it really was an impossible situation for everyone. Yeah, I've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, tried to please everyone and ended up pleasing no one. Mm. It's a very difficult time of year, especially when the equipment to do the job was from the arc compared to what we have now. Mm. Spring, it just seemed to take forever to recover. That's right. But things things have really changed now. And, and, and I think 
we've all realised that late February and March, uh, depending on your sort of ground conditions, I think, can be a really good time to get this work done, given the right conditions. Yeah, it can be a better time to prepare surfaces in, in amongst all the disruption. Um, why do you think we've made this switch, this change? Um, well, I think it's a combination of factors, with the main one, I think, being the sort of uh, ingenuity and maybe positive desire on the part of course, manager, course managers to come up with a solution to this sort of seemingly impossible situation. You know, we we do look at our turf um, more forensically these days and sort of regularly monitor organic matter with the sort of loss on ignition testing in the through the soil profile um, so there you know there's no escape really from the fact that we we do need to do something um, in the spring if we're going to maintain you know playing quality throughout the year and 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 this kind of knowledge coupled with those advances in aerator and top dress technologies and that desire to optimize year-round performance of the greens i think has driven this shift what do you think glenn you know where were you on all this yeah it was all about taking your chances and those chances do occur earlier in the year um so you kind of got a choice of simply using the only window that's being given to you or grabbing the opportunities. And a lot of that depends on the club you're in and the freedom they give you in the diary. But I think what has moved on is modern technology, Henry. 15 years ago, we had band spreaders, metal drag mats and freewheeled Cushmans with a dodgy diff lock and the tendency to wheel spin on greens. And aeration equipment is now a million times better than it was not that long ago. Machinery has really allowed us to push these boundaries. And, and I think the course managers are still pushing those boundaries. And some are even experimenting with hollow tining and top dressing their greens in frosty conditions because they're searching for further improvements. Yeah, sort of those um, taking advantage of sort of firm and dry ground conditions. I mean, that really hasn't become the norm just yet, but it... Again, it does show that course managers are totally committed to go beyond that conventional wisdom uh, in order to achieve the desired level of year-round performance. It's the reason why golf courses are so good these days. Now, I'm interested on your view on this one, Henry. Do do you think that fertiliser technology or certainly the understanding of fertiliser technology has had a part to play in this renovation revolution? Mm. Um, Cold start. Yeah, we're sneaking into that time, aren't we? Yeah, cold start time. Not necessarily, uh, Glenn. Uh, maybe towards the end of the month. Uh, but yeah, I do think the understanding of of uh, and use of fertilizer technologies has has helped us deliver those early renovations because I think that everyone has realised that rather than waiting for growth we can provoke growth responses at this time if conditions are conducive yeah and I guess we're in a customer service industry and we're trying to please those customers a lot of the time Um, but I think in some ways Henry I question whether you're to blame for some of this yeah, I, yeah, I might be. I, I, I don't think some of our recommendations in this area have made us universally popular. <laughs> well, I don't know, but but it was all based on trial work, wasn't it? Yeah, th- yes, it was actually. You know, as always. Um, now, do you want me to tell you the story? I promise to do it quickly. Oh, uh, if it's an interesting one, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> 
Well, I think it is. Okay, so this is the cold start story. You know, we did, um, and it was built on a number of trials that were carried out over a four to five year period, you know, that helped shape the final advice. Um, But it all started, I think, when uh, actually pretty soon after I joined Everest, which is now ICL, in September 2012. That was a long time ago, Henry. Well, it does seem like that. So as when I when I joined, you know, as part of my new technical manager's role, I was lucky enough to be given some trial budget to carry out some trial work of my choosing. It was definitely the honeymoon period, Glenn. So after a period of thought, I decided to get going by commissioning a field trial at the STRI to do with the sort of the initiation of early season growth and the production of smoother putting surfaces earlier in the year with it being such an important issue and in that trial which in fairness wasn't particularly illuminating we looked at a number of the granular products in our range used in conjunction with Primo Max to see what combination if any worked best at creating smoother early season surfaces so assessments were made not only for turf colour and quality uh, but also things like area affected by the disease and the smoothness and trueness of the surfaces using the STRI trueness meter. It sounds like an important and an interesting trial, Henry. Well, it kind of was. If it, it could have worked out better, you know, the results weren't that conclusive in terms of uh, playing quality. But we did get significant results in the areas of turf colour, turf quality, and level of disease. Now, the granular products uh, that were chosen were our six five ten plus iron and eight naught naught plus iron. Kind of fairly standard. Uh, analysis for the for that time of year but there was also another fertilizer in our range which i believe was developed for the nordics during the scots days you know some years ago called cold start which had an 1155 analysis with eight percent iron so it certainly wasn't my invention or indeed actually an analysis that that even I would have seen to have been appropriate for use at this time. No, an 11.55 was not an analysis that was accepted norm at that time. No, um, you know, agronomists at the time, including me, I should say, would probably have been recommending, you know, the other fertilisers, uh, you know, in the territory of the sort of 6510 or the 800. And I, and I think the only reason I put the cold start in the trial was because Nigel Graham, the then head greenkeeper at Shipley Golf Club, which is just at the bottom of the hill from Bingley, who I used to visit quite regularly on a sort of an agronomic basis always used to use like quite a similar analysis to that in the early spring Uh, and it always worked to treat which I always found annoying because it did go in the face of that conventional wisdom but I was interested enough that I decided to throw the cold start into the trial and so my point is that if anyone is to blame only joking of course it is Nigel Nigel, I should say, is a terrific greenkeeper and always used to be actually a very fair crown green bowler. I played him a couple of times and never even got close to him. Anyway, the trial was run and it turned out that the cold start performed the best of all the treatments. Uh, Firstly, in terms of turf colour and turf quality. Uh, And I guess I'd expect that considering the high level of nitrogen in there and the iron 
content in there. Yeah, absolutely. But the surprise for me was that it also resulted in significantly less microdokian patch disease uh, than the other treatments or the untreated controls. Around 7% disease uh, affected area in the cold start treated plots compared to over 20% in the untreated plots. Anyway, the, the, result, the other results weren't particularly earth-shattering or convincing, uh, especially in terms of the uh, smoothness and trueness. And actually, that sort of trial didn't result in anything. Um, it sort of People weren't particularly interested in trying cold start at this time. But it was interesting enough for me to continue with my own trial work. And so in the following two to three years, I did some other trials, including cold start at... Uh, Scarcroft Golf Club in Leeds, thank you, Matt, and Harrogate Golf Club, thank you, Mitch, looking at different early spring fertilisers and the turf responses under different rates of top dressing and stuff like that. And without fail, the cold start always outperformed everything else. And so... You know, on the back of that, I would talk about the findings in my spring presentations, and I also wrote some articles on it, which seemed to sort of coincide with this emerging trend of course managers wanting to initiate strong early season growth in order to get the turf recovered from those earlier and earlier renovations. And as the more people used it, the more it caught on, and it became a part of that process. But... If I'm being honest, I, I really don't think it was that much to do with anything I said or or we were saying as as an organisation. I think it was a, the result of the product performing brilliantly and course managers and dealer reps talking about it. You know, I think Cold Star has become a thing because the product speaks for itself, Glenn. Well, it certainly seems to do the job, Henry, and I can see why people of my generation would step away from it. But you would have had to have worked pretty hard to convince me. But having seen it from this side, I see the value. It's not for everyone, but I think I'd find a place, situations for it in my programme, depending oh. on what I was doing that year. No, it, indeed. It, look, it's recommended for use in situations where a significant early recovery boost is required, like through heavy top, top dressing, for instance. So if you aren't doing particularly heavy early season work, you probably wouldn't need cold start and you might choose a different technology to create a less substantial boost. So why does cold start work so well, Henry? I presume it's nothing particularly magical. No. Um, I do think there's something to be said for formulations that seem to strike the right balance. Um, but I think it's mainly a well-timed dose of sulfate of ammonia that is sort of co-formulated with a balanced level of supporting nutrition, you know, that might offer additional support in those early spring conditions. The high level of iron certainly helps discourage the development of moss and disease, and it obviously it also provides that profound immediate colour-up response. Look, who can say why it is so good, but it's, it's definitely not rocket science. Uh, it just seems to tick the box and of and of course you know the rate of application is 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 a really important consideration when we're looking to set up that turf response generally we recommend for it to be applied at sort of 25 25 to 30 grams per meter squared 
you know, in suitable conditions, depending on the sort of required reaction. Okay, but 25 to 30 grams a metre squared, that equates to around 30 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. That, that's overdoing it a little, isn't it? You just Surely you're just creating some problems with that. Well, you know, that was the conventional wisdom that we were dealing with in 2012, wasn't it? But obviously I don't think so, as long as the product is used responsibly. In terms of any negative consequences, you don't tend to get any uh, associated disease activity, probably due to the nutrient being combined with sulphate of iron. In terms of the level of nitrogen, the product can last from six to eight weeks and over actually at this time. And so that would equate to delivering around four kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week, which is not particularly heavy, especially when you're wanting a substantial growth response and sort of most importantly really i think the sort of that nitrogen input should should really be seen as just a, a part of the annual allocation and so if you build this into your program you might consider dialing back later inputs for instance so you know just to make sure that you hit your annual target um you know, Glenn, we should we should talk about building fertilizer programs next month, Glenn. It's a really interesting subject. You know what? I think you're right there, Henry. There is so much to go out on that one. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, what we're doing here is just apportioning a part of the annual nitrogen allocation at this time just to to achieve a very specific agronomic goal you know the initiation of growth ultimately if it's used properly the cold start is providing a solution not causing a problem and because it allows significant early season renovations to take place and generates quick recovery you know the ultimate aim is to bring about a longer term improvement of the greens you know I really wouldn't recommend it for everyone but if you need a response that can that it can create uh, and you have suitable conditions you know like soil temperatures around that five to six degrees level as a guide you know that we're talking about hopefully emerging towards the end of the month then it can certainly do a job for you but we've got plenty of other fertilizers for this time that would generate different responses it it kind of it just depends on what you need i agree with you henry cold start has definitely found its place and, and I'll give it to you, that was an interesting story. Um, and it's an interesting story as a result of the need to solve a problem. And you're right, we, we are moving forward. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it, Glenn? And and as a final take, I, th- I do think I should say, and he probably won't thank me for saying it, but if you have used Cold Start in the spring and you've got good results out of it and it's helped you get through your early season renovations and ultimately um, lead you towards a longer-term improvement in the performance of your greens, then you have Nigel Graham to thank for it. So thank you, Nigel. I look forward to seeing you at Harrogate. Yeah, nice way of apportioning the blame there, Henry. (laughs) All of that reminds me, Henry, if you are going to come up to Harrogate in March, uh, make sure you come and see us and join our secret listeners club. Mm. Do you remember what the password is, Henry? Yes, listener approaching on the horizon. Oh, God, I'm still not sure about that, Henry. (laughs) But anyway, if you do come to the stand and you say... Listener approaching... On the horizon. Then we are going to give you a membership token. Yeah. Do you know what it is yet, Glenn? I do, Henry. And you're just going to have to wait and see. Ah. 
Okay, Henry, as we touched on last month, there are other forces on the horizon, other forces that might impact golf course management in the next few months and maybe beyond, namely those dreaded economic forces. Well, yes, Glenn, you know, being technical, I tend to stay out of the commercial side of things, but it has been clear, you know, for the last year now that things have become really tough in the world of manufacturing and supply probably starting with Brexit for the UK, but then being compounded by the the impact of COVID-19 on global trade issues, along with even like disruptive climatic events and the sort of the whole world of geopolitics, you know, all resulting in a great strain being put on the global supply chains. And once those, cha- those chains start breaking the issues become compounded. And so whilst I'm no expert on all this, I can say that it is impacting on our industry in a significant way with price rises and possibly even supply issues maybe being on that horizon. Yes, indeed. We're seeing those price rises and shortages in all sectors, aren't we? Yeah, and whilst it's only a sort of short-term bump in the road, hopefully, um, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be problematic for us in the short term. So what are you seeing from your perspective as a fertiliser manufacturer? Well, um, firstly, um, raw material costs have gone through the roof, you know, with staple ingredients such as urea and potassium and others doubling, trebling, quadrupling even in price. Um, Other fundamental ingredients such as iron sulphate have been in short supply and also presenting challenges. There have also been significant increases in production costs with those fuel price increases, um, which especially impacts on those materials uh, that need sort of uh, either to be heated or dried as part of the production process, you know, so like granular fertilizers, organics in particular are kind of hit by this, or blends containing coated materials, for instance. Then we have the costs of packaging increasing, and of course, the costs of distribution have risen also. So look, it's a really challenging time if you're a manufacturer. But actually, at least, you know, as a manufacturer, we're in more control of the situation. I think it will be even more challenging if you were a dealer or distributor who are more on the receiving end of all these compounded issues of like price rises and availability issues etc and that actually goes across the board you know similar issues affecting our surfactant manufacture and seed supply etc so I think it's going to be a challenging time in the short term and it might even be that um, with availability being a potential issue you might have to consider the use of alternatives to get you through you know the, the, the short term. I don't know how it's going to pan out, I should say, but I did want to give everyone the heads up to allow, you know, to allow everyone to sort of plan ahead or at least maybe even reset the level of expectation of your suppliers. As I say, hopefully it'll be a, like a short-term blip and everything will settle back down as soon as possible. Yeah, there's certainly going to be an impact on people's budgets, isn't it? And I, and I think there's still an awful lot moving around at the moment, so it's really difficult to tell. Yeah, it's another one of those impossible situations, Glenn. You know, within ICL, I have been party to some of the local discussions and I know that everyone involved is doing their very best to secure supply and, and for our customers and also try to dampen down those um, price rises as much as possible, you know, just to keep our um, customers supplied and on board. Uh, there's certainly no profiteering going on or trying to take advantage of the situation at ICL. And, and I know the projected margin 
regions uh, are definitely taking a hit in the short term for us. You know, hopefully we can get through this together, you know, with a level head and, and, and that everyone will see that we are trying to do our best to keep supply rolling. Uh, it's really testing times at the moment for all of us, you know. So what are you seeing from a, from a Syngenta perspective, Glenn? Um, I assume your challenges of manufacturing are the same as ours. Very, very similar. Really tough times. We're seeing exactly the same challenges, Henry. Cost of active ingredients are going up. Uh, manufacturing is exponentially increasing. And of course, in the UK, we're dealing with Brexit and all the registration issues that are involved in that. Although we're seeing the same transport increases, we are shipping smaller quantities. So that transport isn't so impactful as it is for you guys in the fertilizer mm. industry shipping pallets mm. of stuff around. Um, mm. The good thing with Syngenta is just the scale of our operation, though, and the depth of experience in the background of our team. And they and the supply chain are doing all they can to mitigate the cost increases to the end user. But it's a difficult balance because it's really important to us that we continue to improve our customer support at the same time as offering really good value. It's so important that we don't compromise that customer support at the moment, which is becoming increasingly important as we enter into these more difficult turf management times. So really tricky balancing act, but we've got a team that's doing everything they can to mitigate mm. it. Okay, thanks, Glenn. So, look, I think the best advice is uh, is to keep in close touch with your suppliers and maybe be open to alternatives if your preferred option is not available at the time that you need it. So start thinking about those alternatives possibly. You know, we'll continue to work in the background to try to secure supply and make it look and feel as if everything is normal and hopefully leave you wondering what this section was all about. I'm already wondering, Henry. So that's it for another On The Horizon. February in the bag. Thank you for listening. I uh, really enjoyed putting February together. It's been a cracker. Hopefully you found that interesting and the information will help you plan ahead. And we'll see you next month when we start looking ahead towards March. But until then, look after yourself. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.